Before I start the podcast today, I wanted to let you know about Power Team Supplements. I used to have restless sleep and wake up feeling tired. I was groggy during the day and just had no energy. I came across a company called ICanSleepBetter.com and they've helped thousands of people over the last 15 years with their products. They sell two products. One is to help people sleep better, and the other is to provide more energy during the day. Power Team to the rescue. Power Team supplements are designed to help you fall asleep faster and deeper by using minerals derived from specific food sources. And they contain a complete range of vitamins and minerals to provide consistent energy levels throughout the day. I can sleep better Supplements are natural and safe, they're non-habit forming, and they're safe to take with other medications. Their products are approved by Health Canada and can be shipped anywhere in the world. If you'd like more info, link is in the description. On April 25th, 1989, James, an African-American man, walked out of a Florida prison 21 years after being wrongfully convicted of killing his seven children. James was born on December 26, 1935. People have described him as a quiet, simple man. His wife was Annie Annie May. When James met Annie May, he said he felt weak and instantly fell in love with her. Annie was previously married and had two children, Betty and Alice, and together they would have five more children. They would have seven children in total. The children ranged in age from two years to eight, eight years old. They moved to Arcadia, Florida in 1966. They both got jobs at an orange grove, picking citrus fruits like oranges and tangerines. They worked long hours to provide for their family. Arcadia is a small, relatively safe town. The population in the 1960s was around 5,800 people and had a diverse range in ethnicities. There was um, a lot of major cities anywhere from 40 minutes to two hours away. During World War I, two U.S. Army airfields were established for training pilots, so Arcadia called itself Aviation City. The airfields were rebuilt prior to World War II and inhabited the city's renewal following the Great Depression and its rapid growth in the late 20th century. The Peace River flows past the west side of Arcadia. So just to give you a picture of what Arcadia is like. On October 25th, 1967, James and Annie May went to work at the Orange Grove, leaving their children in their care of their neighbor, Bessie, who was also African-American. 
Each morning, Annie Mae would cook the children's lunch. This time, it was beans, rice, and grits. And then she would leave it in a pot in the refrigerator so that it could be heated up at lunchtime. When lunch came, the children huddled around the wooden dining room table, and Bessie heated up the food and then gave it to the children. The four older children were in school, but would come home for lunch. After lunch, the older children returned to school. The children started to complain that they felt sick. Their teachers noticed that they were showing strange symptoms, and the principal immediately took the children to the hospital. One of the teachers went to check on the three children at home and found them to be sick as well. They were also taken to the hospital. Each child became violently ill. They would start foaming at the mouth, and moments later, they would be dead. Word was sent to James and Annie at the Orange Grove. Um, they were told that one of their children was ill and that a parent needed to come to the hospital. They both left work to go to the hospital, unaware that six of their children had already passed away. Betty was eight, Alice was seven, Susie six, Doreen five, Vanessa four, and James Jr. was two. The seventh child, Diane, who was three, would die the next day. When James and Annie arrived at the hospital, they weren't told what happened. They were taken to the hospital chapel and they were told to start praying. When they asked why they needed to pray, that's when they were told about the children. I don't know if they were just, I don't know. That just seems like a terrible way to find something like that out. An autopsy revealed that the children had been poisoned with a tasteless, odorless pesticide called parathion. When somebody ingests parathion, it affects the central nervous system by filling the lungs with fluid, drowning the victim. Half a spoonful of parathion would make an adult violently ill. <clears throat> because all of the sick children were from the same family, an investigator went to the apartment building to search for and quarantine any potential poison. He found nothing in the apartment except insect spray, and he didn't believe that the insect spray could have been the cause of the children's poisoning, so he went back to the hospital. Several investigators went back for a second examination of the apartment. The apartment door was not locked, and the investigators noticed a really strong smell, but no sign of poison. When looking around the apartment, they found a business card for an insurance salesman. One of the investigators believed that the poison might have been used as a pesticide and went to the shed behind the apartment building to search for it. He found no poison. Reporters from all over the country heard the story and started coming to Arcadia to cover the breaking news. 
James and law enforcement officers were repeatedly questioned, but they didn't make any preliminary statements. The next morning, after the death of the last child, Diane, a two-pound sack of parathion was discovered in the shed. The investigators who did the search of the apartment all agreed that that bag was not there the day before. The premises had been searched five times. They thought whoever placed the sack in the shed was also probably the person who had poisoned the children. The first officer to arrive at the apartment building spoke with Bessie, the babysitter. She said that another resident, Charlie, discovered the parathion. Charlie was known as the town drunk. He would tell wild stories, so those who knew him really didn't believe his stories. The next day, reporters were told that James had discussed insurance policies for the children the night before their deaths. It was determined that the insurance salesman, George, talked to John just hours before the children were poisoned. According to authorities, James and George gave conflicting stories. No additional evidence was found for two days. The children's funeral was held on Sunday. Both James and his wife collapsed in sadness at the service. The community came together and raised funds for the children's funerals. National news magazines, television, and radio networks covered the funeral. This put the sheriff at the time at the center of nationwide attention. He saw the chance to make a big name for himself and felt he needed to make an arrest fast. Two days after the funeral, James was charged with murder in the first degree. Both James and Annie May were formally charged with child neglect. At a press conference the next day, the police chief announced that James had five other children who had died under mysterious circumstances in another Florida city and that his motive for this crime was to collect insurance money on the children. The insurance money would be about $14,000, which uh, by today's money would be $140,000. When researching this story, I found nothing about James having other children that mysteriously passed away. So it seems like it is an untruthful story. The the judge said that both James and his wife had to take lie detector tests, and the results showed that James had some knowledge of the poisoning, which indicated that he was guilty. Again, this is in the 60s. Technology was not that um, was not that good, so I really don't think that lie detector test would have. Should have been used as evidence, but John was a 30-year-old white lawyer. He believed that the case was being handled unfairly, as the judge constantly claimed that James was guilty. 
John contacted uh, people who knew James and they told him that he had a reputation as a family man and they could not believe that he would kill his children. John then called the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. That's a civil rights organization in the United States. Um, he convinced them, uh, James, that the, or sorry, he convinced the president that the NAACP chapter in Arcadia should ask James whether he wanted to be represented by them. And if he did, they should give him a list of potential lawyers that could help him. James decided to let the NAACP represent him and chose John as his attorney. John went to talk to James while he was being held in the county jail before the trial took place. James was adamant that he did not kill his children and that he loved them very much. James said that the sheriff was pushing him around, calling him the N-word, questioning him in a really mean way every day. The sheriff, according to James, the sheriff told him that he would be let off easy if he confessed to the crime. But James continued to deny that he had ever harmed any of his children. Through another prisoner, John also discovered that the sheriff was placing an eavesdropping device in James's cell whenever John was there to talk to James. John later found a microphone and removed it, letting the sheriff know that he had found it. John later filed a suit to have James released on bail, stating after stating, sorry, after examining the available evidence, there's nothing substantial that would indicate James was guilty. He also contested the high bond that had been set, which started at $100,000, which seems really high for someone who had not been in any trouble with the law previously. After negotiations, the bail was reduced to $7,500, and John was able to have James released on bail. But four, sorry, three former cellmates said that James admitted to them that he murdered his children. The judge revoked the bail. The judge, who was white, had a prominent status in the county, <clears throat> and he had been a judge in Arcadia for more than 31 years. So everyone kind of believed him, believed his word. The trial began on Monday, May 27, 1968, at the Lee County Courthouse in Fort Myers, Florida, which is about an hour away from Arcadia. All of the jurors were white, despite John having requested to have another jury. I mean, how can it be a jury of his peers when there are no African Americans on the jury? 
During the trial, the most shocking development was when the sheriff claimed that there was evidence that at least three of James's children had been killed in another county. And another three had become ill but hadn't died. Bessie, the babysitter, gave evidence that she divided the meals into seven equal parts once the children came home for lunch that day. It was established that she was on parole at the time, but was, was not asked what charge she had been convicted on. They didn't want the jury to find out that she was on parole for having murdered her husband. She was the last person who was with the children, and she was not questioned about her involvement in preparing the food. When asked about finding the sack, Bessie became more specific, claiming that Charlie wanted to look for the sack and that he went straight to the shed, pulled off a board from the window, and discovered the sack of Pelathion implying that she kind of implied that Charlie had prior knowledge to the location of the pesticide. Then an unknown, unknown woman saw them retrieving the sack and called authorities. Charlie was in the courtroom, but was not asked to testify at that time. He would later testify. The next witness was George, the insurance salesman. He claimed that he called the household on October 24th. It was not said whether he was invited or if he was soliciting door-to-door. -door. We would later find out he was soliciting door-to-door. -door. Um, George testified that he had talked about family plans with James, but James could not pay the necessary premiums. George decided that he would come back in a week and discuss it more with James. The defense insisted that George left with the impression that a policy was in place, but George denied this. A pathologist and a chemist concluded that the children had in fact died from the organic phosphate parathion which was found in their stomachs and on utensils in the apartment. Several law enforcement officers testified that they had searched the shed and did not see the bag of parathion there on October the 25th. Charlie testified about finding the sack of the pesticide in the shed. His story agreed with Bessie's and was quickly, he was quickly excused. On May 31st, 1968, the jury deliberated for two hours. They returned with a unanimous guilty verdict. Jurors recommended the death penalty. The judge had Charlie arrested as a material witness and set bond for him at $2,000. No other witnesses were charged. James was sentenced to death and was on death row for nearly five years. 
1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that death penalties in the U.S. at the time were unconstitutional. James's sentence was commuted to life in prison. He would be eligible for parole in 1993. During the five years he was on death row, prison officials would randomly have James go through dry runs or practices of his execution day. They would come to his cell, have him walk to the execution room, and on two occasions they shaved his head and his right leg. And this would happen several times throughout the five years that he was on death row. Mark was an internationally known trial attorney and author. He visited James several times when he was on death row, and James asked Mark to represent him. Mark began an exhaustive investigation, and then later published a book called Arcadia in 1970 about James's wrong, wrongful conviction. In the book, he revealed that the babysitter, Bessie, was convicted of murder and indicated that James and his wife were innocent. At the time of the children's murders, Bessie was on parole for killing her ex-husband using poison. The prosecution had worked hard to keep this from coming up at trial. Bessie wasn't looked into at all for her involvement with the children's deaths, including that, um, that she had given them the food and that she had initially lied, saying that she was not even in the apartment that day. In 1988, Betsy was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and she was living in a nursing home in Arcadia. She confessed to nurses and caregivers about the murders more than 100 times. But her confessions were not taken seriously because of her condition. She died of Alzheimer's in 1992. The last surviving witness to James's alleged jail cell confession recounted his testimony, saying that he had been offered a lighter sentence in return for the testimony. He, he was also encouraged to say that James told him that he was having marital issues at the time of the children's death, which was not true. The investigation into the children's deaths had been inadequate, to say the least. Leads were never looked into. Critical questions were not asked or answered. And there were just so many inconsistencies. A man who had been dating the secretary of one of the state's attorney's deputies was an ex-convict for theft. Uh, one time he saw the girl he was dating, the secretary, lock something into a lockbox. Him being a thief broke into her office and he stole one of three copies of the complete original file on James's case. 
The man knew that a town meeting in support of James' innocence was coming up, and he introduced himself to Mark, the attorney and the author who was helping James, and he gave the files to Mark. Mark then met with the governor's counsel and turned the entire file over to the governor, asking for a full investigation and hearing on James's case. The governor appointed the state's attorney from Miami-Dade County, Janet, to be the special prosecutor on the investigation. On October 25, 1989, a hearing was held in Arcadia, in the same courthouse where James had been convicted of uh, more than 21 years earlier. Mark appeared on behalf of James and Janet appeared on behalf of the state of Florida. They both agreed that a terrible injustice had been done and the wrong person had been convicted of the crimes. Janet cited withholding of elements of evidence. There was evidence of a cover-up by the sheriff, the state attorney, his deputy, as well as the judge. On April 25, 1989, after looking at all of the evidence presented by both sides and noting the inconsistencies and the injustice that had been done in Arcadia over two decades ago, retired Circuit Judge Kelly said that James had not received a fair trial and released him into the custody of his attorneys. <clears throat> After his release, James went to work for a nutritionalist at a health uh, resort in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. The nutritionalist had previously spoken out for James, as well as celebrities, including a well-known Miami attorney, Alice Rubin. James filed a lawsuit against the DeSoto County for his wrongful prosecution and settled for $150,000. On August 25, 2008, after his legal claims had been rejected, James claimed a file under Florida's wrongful conviction compensation law, which provides compensation for, for wrongful imprisonment, um, which is $50,000 a year for each year that they were in prison. James suffered a series of setbacks after being released from jail. The job at the health resort ended. He had severe health problems, which he attributed to prison food, uh, poor health care um, in prison, and constant stress. Um, when he was in prison, he had open heart surgery. Annie May remained loyal to James for part of the time that he was in jail, but she stopped visiting him the last five years that he was in prison. She was by his side when he was released, and James wanted to resume their life together, but he filed for divorce in October and then remarried early 1990. 
In August of 1995, he had a heart attack in his home in Jacksonville, Florida. He was flown to Wichita, Kansas for emergency treatment by a cardiologist. The cardiologist performed an angioplasty and offered James a job as a caretaker on his ranch. Um, I really couldn't find anything. Um, more on that. In 2014, the Florida governor signed into law House Bill 227, which provides compensation to a wrongfully incarcerated person who was convicted and sentenced prior to December 31st, 1979, and who is otherwise exempt from other state provisions for compensation because the case may have been revised by a special prosecutor's blah, 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 sorry, a little legal jargon. Um, the law is pretty restricted, so it's likely that James would be the only person eligible for compensation under this law. I mean, being December 30, before December 31st, 1979, there's probably nobody around anymore. Um, I couldn't find um, anything more recent, but a couple years later, in 2016, he received his first check toward compensation. And it totaled uh, $50,000 for each year of his wrongful imprisonment, which was $1.2 million. In 2015, a documentary film about James was produced called Time Simply Passes. It tells the story of his life um, until the vote to grant him compensation. I did find this documentary on Tubi, and I thought it was a good documentary. Um, it was around two hours or close to, and it went by really fast. I was like, oh, this is over already. Um, I wanted to watch more. So to me, that's a good documentary when I want to continue on with that story. Um, and again, I couldn't really find much information, anything like more recent. But in 2013, James was living in Wichita, Kansas. And that is everything. And I really hope that no other uh, stories like this need to be told because it is extremely sad to hear of the injustice that someone has gone through. Thank you for listening.